ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Russell Moore, you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Every week, we explore conversations and questions here from a Christian perspective. And this week, I'm having a conversation with my friend Benjamin Watson, very familiar to many of the listeners of this show. Uh, He was an NFL tight end who played for the New England Patriots, for the Cleveland Browns, the Baltimore Ravens, and most importantly for me, my hometown team, the New Orleans Saints. And uh, we've worked together on, on various projects through the years, and I'm, I'm really, really grateful for Benjamin Watson and his witness. We were uh, one time uh, working at a, um, a clinic that serves uh, poor neighborhoods in uh, the Ninth Ward of New Orleans, and one of the things there was an ultrasound machine uh, for pregnant women. And Benjamin, his wife Kirsten, who was then pregnant, uh, and me took a picture in front of this ultrasound machine. And I said later, this looks like, you know, couples going to get their ultrasound. And then there's some elf on the shelf uh, appearing there uh, <laughs> with them. So Ed sort of explained what that was. And uh, Benjamin, thanks for being with us today. Hey, it is a pleasure, Dr. Moore. Great to talk to you, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and, and wanted to, I want to talk about all sorts of things related to sports and the church and public witness. But before we do, why are you a Christian? Wow, you come out swinging. I love that about <laughs> you. Um, and before I answer that question— um, Man, that was such a great a great time of dedicating that ultrasound in the Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Um, I so appreciate uh, you being there and all that you, all that you've done. It was exciting, and I got, actually got a report from that from that uh, where we placed the ultrasound that it's in use, that many women are, are using it, and men as well. The doctors are using it. So, what That's a great, great opportunity it was to connect with you. Why am I a Christian? Um, I'm a Christian because, uh, in large part. Um, 
my father played a huge role in me coming to faith, my mm. father and my mother. Uh, I can honestly say that the Lord called me. Um, we, we do know that we respond to the Holy Spirit when he calls us. Uh, there's this this strange um, you know, marriage, I guess, of our, our individual will, but also him calling us. And I, at a very young age, at about six or seven years old, is when I, through repentance and faith, put my trust in Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, and I would say since then, why I'm a Christian, well, number one, the, the Bible talks about us being sealed in him. Mm -hmm. um, but also it talks about working out your faith and having a hope uh, or an answer, I'm sorry, for the hope that you have within you. And for me, that has come through studying the word of God and studying, in some respects, alternatives. What else mm. is out there? Does it really make sense? I think that for believers, uh, when it comes to why we're a Christian, there's obviously a conversion standpoint where we are we pass from death into life. But there's also uh, this idea of continuing to learn and grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ, while also um, understanding the historical context of, of this book that we call the Bible. Mm -hmm. And the fact mm -hmm. that we can put our trust in it because it is proven over and over and over again, not just to be a book of fairy tales or theological statements, but that it's actually true and we can trust it. You know, a lot of people who, like you and like me, came to faith in Christ as children later on have a, a sort of time where they, they kind of reclaim the faith as their own and, and sort of work through uh, how much of this was inherited from mom and dad or from home church or, or wherever. Uh, did you ever go through a time like that or ha has it been consistent uh, ever since uh, that six or seven year old uh, conversion? Uh, that I would say, um, you know, so a little bit about, you know, I, I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia and went to church all the time. <laughs> mm. I was one of those kids. I was, you know, some of my best memories were like the lights would be going down, the sun would be going down and, and the kids would be running around outside in the church parking lot, like playing tag. Yeah. Um, my grandmother was one of those praying grandmothers. And so I was surrounded by people, um, in my family, but also my parents, friends who, uh, were people who I looked at as stalwarts of the faith, you know, people who I could look up to. Um, but but then, you know, you go to you get to high school and you you go to college and that faith has to become your own. Something that we're trying to prepare our kids for, even at a young age, is that, you know what, this has to be yours at some point. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I cannot say, honestly, that there was a time when I doubted the truth of the Bible or the validity of Scripture or or, or the gospel. Or that I, you know, doubted, is this thing really real? I did, however, have times when I felt like I just want to have fun and this isn't fun. Mm -hmm. And I want to go out and hang out with my friends and I want to go celebrate downtown because we just had a big game and we beat Tennessee. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, everybody else is out there. And, and, and there was a time, I would say, where I had maybe one foot— um, in the world on one foot, you know, in the quote unquote church or straddling that fence as, as a believer, but never truly doubting, but wanting to be accepted. Yeah. And, and I think that as a, as a college student, and then maybe early in my NFL career, there was never a time where I really doubted. Um, but, but there were times when I felt like, man, I wish I didn't know what I know <laughs> mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. ignorance is bliss for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, are you, uh, a lot of times people will talk about kids who are um, playing baseball and they think they're going to be in the major leagues or they're playing basketball, they think they're going to be in the NBA. Uh, Were you a kid who kind of always thought, I'll be playing in the NFL one day, or was this just uh, out of the blue, the way that your life story went? Um, My my parents say I always said I wanted to be a football player and a missionary Mm, Um, mm -hmm. from an early age. uh, That's what I wanted to do. I always loved the game of football. Uh, my father played football at University of Maryland. I can remember as a kid, um, you know, going out and throwing a football with him or, or tagging along with him as he would do, you know, chapel services for local high schools when I was a kid or colleges or some NFL teams. Um, football was always something that I wanted to do. The NFL was something that was kind of far off. I just wanted to make it to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think once I got to college, though, I went to Duke first, transferred to University of Georgia. And I saw some of my teammates going to the NFL. That's when I started to have this renewed sense or drive of making it. But quite honestly, Dr. Moore, I was sitting there. 2004 is when I got drafted. My my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we were at my parents' house in Rock Hill, South Carolina. We didn't even have cable television. The only reason why we had cable television is because my dad and mom got it so we could watch the draft because the draft was on ESPN. Mm. And so, and so the big thing in the house was mom and daddy got cable television now, so now we can <laughs> watch the draft. So we're there. A couple of my friends were there, and I didn't really believe it until I got the call from the New England Patriots saying that they were going to draft me with a 30-second pick. And then the mm. question was, well, where is New England? Because in South Carolina and Virginia, where I'm from, we didn't know where New England was. Yeah. Um, but, but that's when it kind of became real to me. At that at that moment. Um, so growing up, I mean, I, like every kid, I wanted to be like either Jerry Rice or Michael Jordan. Um, mm. I didn't keep growing tall enough, I don't think, to play basketball. So the next best thing was playing football. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's almost nobody who's going to end up in the NFL. That is such a small, small percentage of people. But I think there are a lot of people who are going to face what I think had to be a challenge. Uh, in, in their various places, which is ego. I mean, how do you, as a kid, who suddenly you're in a place where there are stadiums full of people cheering for you, how how do you grapple with that pull to to ego? You know, honestly, my... I want to try not to be egotistical when I say this. <laughs> <laughs> But part of my my issue, I think, Dr. Moore, um, has been at times not enough ego. Mm-hmm. At times feeling like, man, I don't deserve this. Um, mm. So kind of like but, an imposter syndrome sort of a thing. Yes, but it, but it comes it, it breathes it comes out of my perfectionism. Ah, and so um, I, I've talked about this before, but. You know, as I mentioned, I grew up with two Bible-believing parents, taught us. They took care of us. They were there for us. We, did, we didn't have a whole lot, but we had them. Like, they, mm-hmm. my parents poured into our lives. Um, I saw how they impacted other people in the community, how people looked up to them and respected them. Um, I developed this complex, putting my, my father especially on a pedestal that he didn't deserve to be on because he's a human being like all of us. Mm-hmm. But as young boys— um, those of us who have, you know, fathers, many times we look at our dads like they're Superman. And that's a good yeah. thing. That's a great yeah. thing. But I think I developed in my in my spiritual life 
but also in my, um, you know, it wasn't professional at the time, but my amateur sports life, kind of this complex of perfectionism. Like it was okay for other people to mess up. I'll give them grace. But if I did something, I was like down in the dumps. Like my ego Mm. or my self image was just up and down with how I practiced, how I played. And it wasn't very healthy. And then I got drafted to New England. And we talk about ego. There's one coach in the NFL that really could keep your ego in check. And that's Bill Belichick. Mm. But for somebody who was already kind of teetering on, do I have what it takes it was really tough for me at times. Mm. And so um, while, you know, I enjoyed and saw the privileges that you get from being one of the only 2000 men a year who make it onto NFL rosters um, inside, there was always this kind of perfectionism and really this works righteousness muscle in my spiritual life, you know, because it bleeds over that Mm -hmm. I was having to deal with. And so I lacked confidence a lot of times in my work, my physical, tangible work, but then in my spiritual life, the way it manifested itself was that I, I lacked, um, I lacked worth or, or belonging simply in what Christ did for me on the cross. It was, mm. it was yes, all those things are true. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we're one in Him. All that stuff is true. I can't earn this by grace. Are you, are you saved through faith? All that stuff was true. If you were to ask me. Yeah. But I still felt a lot of guilt over things that I had done that I knew weren't right. And I would allow others to have forgiveness, but I would beat myself up about it. You know, I think that is really common to have um, to have a mind understanding that uh, we're, we're standing before God in Christ. But it's, it's harder to feel that way. You know, you, you could get into a performance-oriented sort of life where you know all the right answers, but you just— it's tr- it's it's a hard time applying it to yourself. I know I uh, grapple with that too. H- how did you sort of work yourself through that? Or or even I think maybe the the bigger question is how did you know that was going on? Because I think that the people who have the most trouble with it are the people who they don't know what you just said. They're they're living through that, but they don't recognize it. Well, things started manifesting in my own body um, mm. when you're getting stress, tension, headaches. Um, Everybody has some sort of anxiety to perform. Many people do. I mean, that's not Mm -hmm. something that's crazy. Like most people don't like getting up in front of a bunch of people and doing things. But when when your anxiety is taking over your life, um, when you are, there was one episode, so my wife and I got married in 2005, the year after I got drafted. And um, we didn't have kids yet. We didn't have our first child until 2009. Um, And I was making... Something, I was cooking some sort of dinner and I like messed it up and I lost it. I can't do anything right. And she looked at me, grabbed me. She's like, you have a problem. You need to get some help. Mm. And so part of the working it out process or getting better was going to get professional help, mm-hmm. going to see um, a psychiatrist, go, mm-hmm. going, submitting myself to saying, OK, I, I need some help to work through some things. This is getting out of hand. It's bleeding over into my marriage. How do I deal with this? I need some help to deal with it. So that was one part of it. Another part of it was going back to the the person, not necessarily who hurt you intentionally, but who was at the center of this whole issue that I was dealing with. And that's my father. Mm-hmm. And it was something that he didn't know that he did. He didn't do anything on purpose. A lot of that yeah. was my perception of him. Um, but having a conversation 
and him telling me that, man, I wasn't perfect. You know, when I was in college, I thought another girl looked good other than your mother. <gasps> Can you believe that? <laughs> like, daddy actually thought like a woman looked, you know, just even little yeah. conversations like that with my father allowed me to make him a human. Yeah. And and then allowed me to receive grace. And he, 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 he gave me this book called Grace Walk as well. I forgot who wrote it. Um, I, I read the book. And again, it reiterated a lot of things that I already knew from Scripture. But sometimes we just our 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 works muscles, and especially you know in a sport where you are judged every single day, not every week, like every single day you come off the practice field and did you do it right or did you do it wrong? And if you mm-hmm. did it right, was it all the way right? I mean, you'd literally have a report card in front of everybody on mm-hmm. the film, up or down, every single day. Um, and for many, for many people, that that's difficult. And so, you know, it was it was a three prong process. It was my wife identifying that I had a problem and pushing me to go. It was me going to get help. It was me talking to my father, reading that book, and experiencing God's grace in a whole new way. And now it's being aware that you know we all have our certain proclivities. We're all made a certain way. We all have to be aware of certain blind spots or trap doors that we have. Um, Mm -hmm. And so now it's just being aware that, you know, this is something that can creep up on me um, if I'm not careful. And I begin to think that it's all about all about me. And I heap so much on myself and not, you know, releasing that to to the Lord. Yeah. And and when you're uh, performing at that uh, level, uh, everybody's got an opinion. Uh, about how you're doing. And so especially the people who are maybe the most ardent fans of your team, they're going to have an opinion. When you say they're looking at a check card every day, that's, you know, they're people talking about uh, everything that you've done wrong, if you've done something wrong uh, on on the radio and everywhere else. Did you pay attention to any of that? Or did you sort of say, I've got to keep my head out of that in order to to do what I need to do? Yeah, one thing, the good thing is, for much of my career, for, well, for my first seven years, there was no Twitter. <laughs> there, was, there was no Instagram. Uh, for good yeah. and for bad. I mean, it can be used positively to grow your platform or you can take shots on it. Um, for us, it was mostly the newspaper um, and, and the local news and ESPN, those sorts of things. But well, one thing my wife, Kirsten, did um, was she, she wanted to make our house kind of a, a safe place. Mm. And so knowing what she knew about her husband. She's like, you know what? We're not gonna have newspaper clippings around the house. We're not gonna have pictures of football around the house because I know that needs to be your work and you need to be able to separate that from who you are. Mm -hmm. And so when you come home, that needs to be who you are. I don't want you to be reminded of all those things out there. So so that was was one thing kind of incubating ourselves. And and she led led the the way in that. and I also had to obviously monitor, but, you know, that was one thing substantial, tangible, I think, that she did and that we did to try to help, um, you know, with the problem that I was having. Hmm. You know, when you were talking about going to talk to your dad, uh, all I could think is what a gift that is to be able to have that sort of a conversation. A lot of people could never do that because uh, they would have a, a parent who would be really offended by even having uh, th- that sort of uh, conversation. It's a really a gift that you're able to do that. Uh, how do you think about that? I mean, you're a father. 
And uh, as you're thinking through, I mean, we all, I realize this all the time. There were so many messages that I would pick up that nobody was intending to teach me. It was just stuff Mm -hmm. I I, I picked up. And it makes me wonder all the time, what sort of messages are my kids picking up that I'm not intending for them to to pick up? How How does that, sort of affect the way that you're, you're parenting your kids? I mean, how do you think through these issues of performance and perfectionism and, and so forth with them? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And um, fortunately, I mean, my, my father, um, you know, he's the best man in my wedding. I consider him to be my best friend other than my wife. And we had that conversation and you know, he said there were a lot of things that he didn't he didn't know how I was receiving certain things. And I think as mm-hmm. parents, we forget, I forget to put myself in the eyes of my 10 year old boy. Yeah. How he's looking at me. Like when I say certain things to him, even if they're in jest, how is he as a little boy? receiving that from a grown man. In our heads as adults, what I'm realizing is that I just think of myself the the same way I always did. I'm just a big kid that for some reason, God let me have kids and be married. Like, I don't deserve this. I'm not responsible enough. I'm just a big kid. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) But to our children, they look at us as giants. And so in that conversation with my dad, he, he, he apologized for, you know, not intentionally being open about certain things in his life that maybe he didn't even think he had to be. Mm-hmm. And so for me receiving that, and, you know, I have, I have four boys and three girls. It's trying to humanize myself intentionally to my children. Mm. And sometimes that doesn't come naturally as a dad. Mm. Uh, sometimes we don't take the time to have those conversations. Sometimes we don't even think about it. We feel like we don't need to, um, but apologizing to them when we, are angry at them and we step out of bounds from anger into insult. Mm. Um, talking to them about our fears. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm nervous about going to speak here. Are you ever nervous when you go speak places? Yeah, daddy, I am. You're scared to speak? Yeah, I am, but you're an mm-hmm. adult. I know, but I still have those problems. Mm-hmm. Talking to them even about temptation that you mm-hmm. may have and how you're dealing with it. Uh, so for me as a parent, for us as parents, uh, me and my wife, is continually trying to look at ourselves through their eyes, remember what we wish we would have heard from our parents, but maybe didn't, even if it wasn't on purpose, and try to, as much as we can, supply that for them. Knowing also, Dr. Moore, that we're going to wound them in some way. Like yeah. <laughs> every, yeah. every, every kid is wounded by their parents in some way, yeah. intentional or not. We're not going to get it perfect but we want to minimize as much as we can and be as intentional and proactive as we can with our children. Speaking of kids, I have had multiple pastors who have said the same sort of thing to me, which is to say uh, the biggest issue that they are facing is not sort of secularization or those sorts of things. Uh, Many of them will say it's elementary school sports. If you think about what's actually causing Uh, a disconnect a lot of times with the church. It's kids who are constantly, they're they're programmed uh, completely all through the week. Maybe they're on a traveling swim team or something like that on the weekend. Uh, And and this is a a big big issue. 
Do do you think that's accurate? Do you think that's true? And and if so, how how should we address it? I mean, is that just the world we're living in now? You know, I, I think that we need to, as parents, set priorities. Mm. Um, we do live in a different world than when I was a kid. Uh, from a sports standpoint, uh, you know, across the board, from youth sports to the NFL expanding the season, um, there is more consumption. There's a larger appetite uh, from to entertain. There are more opportunities. There's more training. Uh, it, it is it, sports really has become even a bigger billion dollar industry than it was when we were younger, um, and so part of that is the world that we living we're living in, and part of that is great. Um, on the same token, there need to be some non negotiables in your family. What happens a lot of times, and we're just kind of entering into that time. Uh, my oldest is thirteen; she's in dance, so ballet is is like five times a week. It's really intense. Ooh. The others are dabbling in different sports. But one thing that we are going to attempt to do and try to do is to keep certain things sacred, like dinner time as much as we can and Sundays as much as we can. And this is coming from a guy that worked on Sunday. Mm. You know, that was my job for several years, 16 years in the NFL. I played on Sunday. But one thing my wife did do was take the kids to church, even if I was playing in a game because it was a Mm. priority. Mm-hmm. And so what we can allow, what I do hear a lot of times from parents is that we start to feel controlled by the whims of the culture of sport. Like, like we have to because if we don't, our kid won't be able to do X, Y and Z because mm-hmm. other kids are doing it. Yeah. Uh, my grandma one time told me before she passed, one thing she would always tell me on the phone when I would talk to her. Um, she would say, Benjamin, <laughs> what God has for you is for you, not for anybody else. And I believe that that's true for our children. You know, mm. just because they weren't able to go and play in this game on a Sunday and we're not taking them out of church every single week or just because they're like, look, there's practice on Sunday morning, but hey, we're, we're, we're going to dedicate that time. If it's practice, we're definitely going to go to church. We're not going to go to practice. What God has for your kids is for your kids. And there are several other opportunities for them to hone their their skills over the next 10 years, five years, whatever you have left with them that won't impact, you know, what these pastors are talking about. But it's going to take parents making that decision. And I'll say this, it may be a decision that parents in a specific community or a specific church body need to make collectively because the other fear that parents have is, is my kid going to be the one that's left out and be the outcast? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've mentioned this here before about one day where I heard, I talked to an artist and I talked to a scientist about completely different things. And both of them, somewhere in the conversation, said something along the lines of, the artist said, it's really hard for artists to fit in in the church because everything's so cerebral. And the scientist said, it's really hard for scientists to fit in in the church because everything's so emotive. Uh, and I was thinking, well, well how, how can both of those things be true? And at another point, I talked to an athlete who was uh, not talking about how hard it is to fit in in the church, but who was saying uh, that he's been searching all his life for the spiritual equivalent of what he had with the coach, that he, he had uh, a coach who just reshaped his life. Uh, investing in him. And he said, I I just wonder why we don't see that happening more uh, within the Christian community. Uh, And and others who have said, look, I've got such a bond with my teammates, regardless of what sport they're playing, that there's this real sense of, sometimes even the way it's described is almost like what the Apostle Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians with um, uh, one body, many members, uh, and and a multitude of gifts. I I have that on the playing field, but it's hard for me to experience that in the church. What what do you think the church can learn uh, from the best aspects of what's happening in athletics? You know, I, I think the church meaning the body, can learn about community. You know, when we when we look at the New Testament church, and, you know, I don't want to get into all these comparisons. It's a different time. I mean, I get it. But mm-hmm. there was this idea of doing life together, communing together, sacrificing for each other, pooling our resources so nobody is left destitute, Um ministering to each other, showing up and praying for one another, um, interceding, like advocating for each other, even if it was something that didn't you know, necessarily impact them. There's this idea of going through, and a lot of that was through persecution and trial, which, mm. you know, when you live in a time of more abundance, sometimes community, you know, ties are, are lacking, which in the athletic sphere, going through a two-a-days and a training camp and bleeding with each other and crying with each other in failure and celebrating with each other in victory, that brings you together in mm. a way that you described that so many athletes yearn for and, and reasons why we loved our sport. Um, and you don't find that as much in the body um, because we don't have the same type of community. We're not, we're not dedicated to it. We are mm. very individualistic specifically when you talk about the, the American context of of just life, you know, we're a very individualistic society. Um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do things on your own, individual responsibility. We're not as community oriented as some other, um, you know, uh, 
contexts are around the world. So I think that's part of it. But 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 the main thing I think is the sense of community, and that's Ooh. what you know for us. You know, Kirsten and I, you know, we played on four different teams and you know four different cities around the country, and we haven't, from a spiritual perspective, there have been very few places where we had that type of community. I had Ooh. it in the locker room with mm-hmm. some of those guys and our chapel services and our Bible studies and those sorts of things. But in the local church, it was difficult except for, except for one place. We kind of started to feel that that was in new Orleans at the church we went to there. And we had some good friends that were in the area and we would go to a small group. And, but again, it is lacking. And I think, and I think that a lot of believers are suffering in silence uh, because we don't have that type of community. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your your former teammate, uh, as we're recording this right now, Tom Brady, uh, announced that he was retiring, and then announced three weeks later, "Nope, I'm not. I'm I'm back. Uh, I'm, I'm back in." Back I, I, think the way, I think the way he put it was, I, "I've decided I'm not meant for the stands. I'm meant for being on the on the field." On the and field, you've had yeah. To, yeah, you've had to make that decision as to when to when to keep playing and when to move on to the next phase of your uh, ministry and career. And that's got to be hard to do. And I think there's, there's, you know, people who would never make it on a football field, but who are having to make those sorts of decisions in their, in their life. How do, you, how do you make that kind of a decision? How do you know what the right thing to do is? I wish I had a magic potion or, I mean, I have no idea, Dr. Moore, because I, 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 I tried to retire and then I, I realized I still wanted to play one more time. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was totally done. I was totally done. I was done. Uh, my contract expired. And then I, you know, decided later on that I wanted to try one more time. Um, for me, when I knew it was that last year in New England, I knew that was it because my body just couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's, 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 we used to have this sign uh Actually, it was in New Orleans when I was with the Saints. Coach Payton had this sign. I think he got it from Coach Parcells because everybody gets everything from everybody else. But it said, there are many exit doors in pro football. There are many exit doors in pro football. One of them is, you know, lack of talent. You know, your talents diminish. Sometimes there's just younger people that come in and they play better than you. Sometimes a coach changes. But one of those exit doors is when your body won't work anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for me, the combination of you know, tearing an Achilles, blowing a disc in my back, you know, concussions. It was, it was time. Um, but if you're like Tom and he's still at 40 something years old, 44 years old, still in the top echelon of quarterbacks, it makes it even more difficult because of where he is. Um, so for me, that that's how I knew it was the end. But kind of going back to our other conversation, one of the reasons why people keep on playing it's because there's a desire to compete, there's a desire to achieve, and you miss the locker room relationships that you've had. There was nothing like being with a group of men, going through the same things, dealing with the same problems, having the same types of struggles, and having that bond, and it just it, it keeps you in as long as you can. You know, one of the things that's, uh, that seems to be the case with sports is this used to be, maybe it's just an illusion. But it seems like it used to be something everybody could agree on. And sort of when you went into the stands, you're sort of uh, everything else is is gone. And now we see a lot of culture war uh, tension going on with sports. 
maybe not as much right at the moment as we did, say, several years ago when there was such controversy with Colin Kaepernick uh, taking a knee instead of standing at the national anthem and so forth. Is is that a right perception? Is, is there something about sort of um, the polarization that we see in the outside world that that's bleeding into sports now? Or does it just seem that way? <clears throat> I, I would venture to say that it's, that it's an illusion for some people. You know, these things mm-hmm. have always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, if you want to talk about, you know, 2020 or, you know, a few years before that, uh, police brutality, you know, men be- bring awareness to those sorts of things that have been happening mm-hmm. in communities across this country since before emancipation. Um, these issues have have all always been there. Uh, I just think that now they are being... Fortunately, um, highlighted more. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you see, you know, I think that you see athletes taking more agency when it comes to speaking their mind and bringing awareness to injustices that they've been concerned about for several years, for mm-hmm. generations, quite honestly. Um, and then I think that there is there is the casual fan of the sport. And for that man or woman, this is mind blowing for them. It's something that they don't want to see at a game. I get it. It's something that they, in their outside of sports life, didn't think was really a problem uh, for whatever reason. It's something that they just don't want to confront. And so it makes them uncomfortable, ruffles their feathers, and they don't want to deal with it at a football game. I totally understand that. Um, But it's it's nothing new. Mm. And I think what's great about it um, from from my seat, being in the NFL for several years and now being outside of the NFL, but being someone who has been concerned about the racial wealth gap, has been concerned about policing and over-policing, has been concerned about incarceration for, for so many years, employment, the list goes on and on from a mm-hmm. American racial, um, I guess, conversation. It's great to see players not only speaking about it, but being educated more on all that there is to know. It's one thing just to talk about something, and that's part of it, everybody has a role. It's another thing when I see these guys say, you know, I'm gonna go out in the community, I'm gonna talk to police officers, I'm gonna talk to uh, people who are in prison, I'm gonna talk to lawyers, I'm I'm gonna figure things out in the places where God has placed me, the cities where he's placed me that may be totally different from where I grew up so that I can be a better voice and better advocate. Um, And so no, I I, I don't think that things are different now. I just think that, I just think that there's more noise being made and more people are hearing about it. Because as you mentioned, we've got so many more avenues, whether it be social media or the new TV contracts, there's a lot more cameras out there. And so the word I think is getting out more about what players feel, but also what they're doing to, to correct and assist. What do you think about in that set of issues that you mentioned, um, but what we could categorize as racial justice issues having to do with policing, wealth gap, all of those things, are, are things moving in a better direction or a worse direction from what you can see? I've been um, fairly, I've been encouraged in some respects. I'll say this. I think that there are, there are more people who are willing to engage maybe than there used to be. Mm. Some There have been several people. I mean, when you think back to 2020 and you think about the images of uh, Derek Chauvin on George Floyd's neck, that sparked something in a lot of people across 
socioeconomic status and, and ethnic status that, well, this isn't right. I don't know about all the other stuff you talked about, but this, there's a problem here. What can mm -hmm. I, what can I learn about this? And so that was just the latest in several iterations of racial awakening that we experienced in America from time to time, every five years. It was Ferguson. It was Rodney King. It was, I mean, it's boom, 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 boom. It keeps going back and keeps going back. That was the latest. And so there are there are flickers of of this hope that, that people are going to understand and people are going to get it. Um, but that's always tempered with going back to the status quo. And when I when I look at the statistics and I look at a, a 50 year um, unemployment rate that is always double in black America what it is in white America. When I look mm. at a wealth gap that is is 10 to 1, 11 to 1, 12 to 1, depending on what year of net worth between a white family and their black counterpart. When I look even at the issue of abortion and we talk about the fact that, you know, in some places in America, if you're a black child, you may be ab aborted at a higher rate than you are born alive. But I also look at the systemic factors of racism that make these black women and their children and men more vulnerable. It all goes into the same funnel. Then I say, you know what? I, I don't I'm not hopeful because a lot of things haven't changed in a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And some things are very, very stagnant. Um, so that just tells me that there is much more work to be done. There's, there's, there's a couple things. There's the awareness piece, and that goes to what you said and what we talked about from NFL players talking about these things. There's an awareness piece. Um, then there's an internalization piece. Okay, Lord, um, is this true, and what do you want? how do you want me to engage? And then there's walking it out. And I think that with race specifically and racial justice specifically, <clears throat> it, is, it, is, it is at the core of who we are as a country. And because of that, this is the issue, amongst all others, that I think is the most difficult to confront and deal with because mm -hmm. it's like looking in a mirror. It tells us about who we are. Mm -hmm. and, and for Americans, for white Americans, even for black Americans, it, it's ugly to look at it. And it also disempowers us sometimes because we're like, how can I change what so many people in so many generations and so many sectors from government to education to sports to entertainment have worked so hard to concretize in our society. Mm -hmm. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. 
You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Yeah, and it's it's kind of discouraging when you look out and you see within the church that uh, it pastors, whether white or black, in majority white congregations, it seems if they even raise uh, any of these. I, I know a, a pastor who just prayed for the family of George Floyd uh, the, the, the weekend, uh, the Sunday after he was murdered. And he had people saying, you're a critical race theorist, you're a Marxist, <laughs> you're a, you know, all of this sort of thing. Yeah. And you have people who are, that that seems to, in some sectors of the church, actually to be actually getting worse uh, right now in ways because agree. people are just backing backing away from even raising the issue. Uh, what What advice would you give to a pastor who's trying to, who really does think the Bible speaks to these uh, issues, and yet I don't know how to how to even speak to the consciences of my people without having this sort of uh, backlash? Be willing to walk alone. Mm. Um, my advice to pastors is be be okay with all of your congregants leaving your church. Mm. Mm. And that that has happened to some, to some pastors. Yeah, yeah, has, that yeah. has happened. Um, but even as I look through Scripture, I see a lot of people who, while they were in community as believers, they weren't always the most popular people. Because even when we look at Jesus, he wasn't the most popular person. That's why he was killed. But it was because he dealt with a plethora of issues that seemed to be outside of the redemption of religion. Mm. And he saw the people and he saw their need and he never sacrificed truth for grace or or justice for mercy. But but he, he loved people where they were and let the truth do what the truth does. And so, you know, I think that my advice to pastors is be willing to preach the complete canon. Mm. Mm-hmm. There are some parts of the canon that play well to a white church. There's some parts that play well to a black church. Be willing to preach all of it and teach all mm-hmm. of it. And if people leave you and call you a Marxist and a critical theorist, then you already know what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've been, I've been, I mean, even when it comes to schools, Dr. Moore, there are, there has been white flight out of some schools in this area here in Georgia because there's been a desire from parents to talk about and deal with race in the wake of George Floyd and protests and all those things. But then when we want to talk about how we got here, what what were the laws put in place that still impact us today? Mm. The fact that stuff wasn't so long ago, it's happening right now. A report just came out from about Wells Fargo directing, in 2012 they did it, they directed black and Hispanic, um, you know, mortgages, they, they got them in risky mortgages. And, and the report just came out talking about how higher qualified black applicants were accepted at the same rate as the lower qualified white. These stuff still goes on today. Mm-hmm. And what's amazing is we can talk about these things and people will agree. But then when it comes time to actually speak on it publicly, 
people leave. There are people yeah. that are exiting Christian schools right now because of CRT and can't tell you what CRT is. And yeah. so if I sound frustrated, it's because I am. Um, but I'm not without hope. I'm yeah. not without hope. But but it is it is it is really frustrating the time we are. And I think I agree with you that it's getting even worse in some respects because we live in kind of theolo- not theological, but philosophical silos. And we simply just spin around and reaffirm the things that we believe. Yeah. 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 You know, when we started out, I asked you why you're a Christian. And uh, I mean, that's obviously a really hard question to answer because none of us can see all the ways that God's grace is working. Mm -hmm. But think about um, right now, maybe a, a student athlete, 18 years old, really, really gifted, really uh, pursued um, uh, for an athletic career, and he, he wants to follow Christ. He doesn't know what sorts of temptations he's going to face uh, in his life. What counsel would you give to him? Read your word. Hmm. Read your Bible. Um, this year, well, last year, um, my wife and I, yeah, I, I've read obviously all the parts of the Bible in different ways, but I've never like actually sat down in a year or a certain amount of time and like read through the, read through the entire Bible. I just must not have been that good a Christian. I don't know. <laughs> but, 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 but last year, Curse and I like dedicated ourselves to doing that. And like, I really fell in love with the word of God in a new way. Mm. And w- w- when you read systematically through scripture, you know, a little bit every day, you just see the bigger story. Mm. You see God's story of creation and fall and redemption. You, you see all those sorts of things. And, and and going back to this topic of justice, like those words jumped off the page at me. Mm. I mean, in Hosea and in Psalms and in Proverbs and in Isaiah and in Amos and in James and, you know, Ezekiel and talking about justice for the oppressed and the widow and and just talking about correcting what sin has done, doing our best to bring mankind into a better relationship with each other and with God as because of what's happened in the fall, it just jumped off the page of me and just really invigorated me. Um, Mm. And my advice to that kid would be, there's going to be a lot of stuff coming your way. Don't try to figure out if everything is, is don't, don't, if you have a hundred dollar bill and has the, the watermark line and you know this is a real hundred dollar bill, I don't have to go and look at every counterfeit to see why it's a counterfeit mm-hmm. because I know the, the authentic hundred dollar bill. I would tell him or her that the word of God is your authentic bona fide hundred dollar bill. Know the word of God, anchor yourself in truth. The word is living and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It will give you wisdom and understanding and guide you and give you strength in hard times. Anchor yourself in that and you don't have to worry about all the other things that you got to fight against. Mm, that's a good word. That's good counsel. You and Kirsten have uh, a lot of resources, especially on parenting, um, helping uh, folks to, to figure out uh, how to find their way here. Where can, where can folks find more out about that? 
Uh, they can go to uh, our website is the Watson Seven, all spelled out, thewatson7.com, and uh, you can hear about our podcast. Why or why not with the Watsons? We've been podcasting on marriage, parenting, um, culture for two years now. We kind of started in the middle of kind of COVID. There was not, no other adults to talk to other than me and her and seven kids. So we started podcasting with each other. So you can find that podcast on all platforms. And um, my books are Under Our Skin and The New Dad's Playbook. And Kirsten, my wife, Dr. Moore, is coming out with her very first book on May 3rd called Sis Take a Breath. It's an encouragement wow. for women who do so much, who find themselves overwhelmed at times. Um, Sis Take a Breath coming out on May 3rd. I'm like her biggest cheerleader right now. Um, don't tell her, but I'm getting T-shirts printed up. Uh, that's just gonna. Have, I'm just gonna wear a T-shirt every day with the cover of her book on it. So that's great. That's great. That that definitely sounds like a needed uh, resource for a lot of people right <laughs> yes. now. Yes. Yes. Benjamin Watson, I'm so uh, grateful for you, grateful for your friendship, and grateful for your taking the time to have this uh, conversation today. Now, I appreciate you so much, Dr. Moore. I, I um, consider it an honor to call you a friend, and, and thank you so much for this conversation. Love everything that you're doing, and lo love reading your blogs as well. Um, I, I think that you are a light, um, not only for me, but for the entire culture. Keep on keeping on. Well, thank you, brother. You have been listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Tap the cover art and you can have uh, more information, including how to get a copy of Kirsten Watson's forthcoming book uh, and other resources. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend. Leave a review, helps people to find us and subscribe there. This is Russell Moore and this is Russell Moore Show. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our chief creative officer. Russell Moore is the executive producer and our host. Mike Cosper is our director of podcasts. Administration for CT by Christine Kolb, Pam Vodanova, and Abby Perry. Production assistance by Cormedia. Beth Grabencourt, coordinator. Kevin Duthu, producer and sound mixer. Our theme song is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hudden. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.